Mean Old Lion Media presents Pregnancy Pearls. Meet Dr. Nicole Plenty, a double board certified OBGYN and high risk pregnancy expert. She's brilliant, well researched, and feisty. Growing tired of seeing complications of pregnancy that could have been prevented, she wanted a way to empower women through knowledge because, as she says, all doctors aren't created equal. This quest to educate women birthed this podcast, Pregnancy Pearls, with Dr. Plenty. Thanks for listening to Pregnancy Pearls Podcast with me, Dr. Nicole Plenty. It is February. We're well underway, which means that it's Heart Health Month. So I really want to make sure that you guys listen to the last episode, which is on heart disease. Now, heart disease is the number one killer of all people, men and women in the United States. It's also the most common cause of maternal death in black women. So that's really why I feel like that episode is one of the most important episodes. So go back and listen to that one if you haven't. But the most common cause of maternal death worldwide is hemorrhage. So although we discussed normal postpartum bleeding and miscarriages in one of our first seasons, I think it's important that we discuss significant bleeding at the time of delivery and in the postpartum period. So let's just go ahead and get into that. And honestly, I'm surprised we haven't talked about this in detail before today, but you know, there's no better time like the present. So when we say hemorrhage in pregnancy, we mean bleeding from the uterus or vagina during the pregnancy. So that's what we mean, hemorrhage, a lot of bleeding, okay? Hemorrhage can happen at any time during the pregnancy. In the first trimester, a significant hemorrhage can be caused by miscarriage or losing a baby or what's called a subchorionic hemorrhage, which is when blood collects between the two layers of the baby's sac. Now, the two layers of the sac are called the amnion and the chorion, hence the name subchorionic, because it's between those two layers. And that's when blood just accumulates. Now, during season one, we we specifically talked about that first trimester miscarriage and subchorionic hemorrhage. So I won't belabor that, okay? Go back and listen to that, that that previous episode. It's still good. Now, in the second and third trimesters, hemorrhage can be caused by the placenta separating from the uterus or what's called a placental abruption. Okay, that's usually bleeding along with a lot of severe abdominal or stomach pain. It can also be caused by placenta privia, which is where the placenta or the afterbirth covers the opening of the uterus, which is called the cervix. Or it can even be called by a vasoprevia, which is when vessels or cord, the umbilical cord, covers the inside of the cervix. Now, the reason that, that those things cause hemorrhage is anything that is vascular or supplied by a lot of blood that's directly over the cervix. If you start contracting and dilating, those vessels that connect the placenta or even the cord, if it's tacked down there over the cervix, those connecting vessels can shear away when you start to dilate, okay? And that can cause you to lose a significant amount of blood from the cord, which is going to cause brisk bleeding, or from the placenta um, itself. Significant hemorrhage or bleeding even before labor and delivery usually requires a delivery. So if you have a second or third trimester hemorrhage, meaning from an abruption, or a vasa previa, meaning the cord is bleeding because you're starting to dilate and those vessels are shearing. Usually that's an urgent delivery, okay? We don't really keep people that are bleeding heavily in pregnancy 
pregnant. Okay. Now, some people have a gush of blood, they bleed, they bleed, and they stop bleeding. Those are people that we can keep pregnant as long as you're not bleeding and you're stable from a clinical standpoint. Like you're not in a whole bunch of pain, your vital signs are normal, you haven't lost a significant amount of blood. Um, those are people that may have what's called a partial eruption, or they may have had um, an acute bleed, meaning you bled real quick and then it stopped as long as it stopped. Okay. But if you have significant blood loss, like now you're dizzy or your heart rate's high, or you've lost a lot of blood and you need a blood transfusion, it doesn't matter how far along you are. That usually requires us to move forward with the delivery because it's hard to say when you're going to bleed again, right? And if you bleed significantly, that can cause your body to go into shock and it can cause you to lose your life. And this being one of the most common causes of maternal death, meaning death in pregnancy, we want to make sure that hemorrhage is taken pretty seriously. Um, not enough people act aggressively with hemorrhage. They say, oh, you were bleeding, but you stopped. So we're going to keep you pregnant when realistically they should have moved to delivery because when you bleed, we don't know how quickly you're going to bleed, how much blood you're going to lose. And that's why anyone with a significant bleed should be hospitalized and monitored, even if you're not viable, even if you're like 20 weeks. Significant bleed requires us to monitor you to see if you are stable and to make sure your blood count isn't going down and down and down and down because that would necessitate a delivery. Even if we can't see the bleeding on the outside, it could be that you're bleeding on the inside. Okay. So very, very important. There's a lot of hospitals that may not have blood products to replace your blood loss. So anybody that has a significant amount of bleeding, doesn't matter what country you're in, it doesn't matter. You should be sent to a hospital that has blood. If you're in another country, that may mean you may need to go to a hospital that's miles and miles or cities and cities away. Same with here in the U.S. It could mean that you're going from a very small hospital, if you're in a big city, to one of the tertiary care hospitals. That can mean you're being helicoptered from one hospital to another just to get to a hospital that has blood products. If you're actively bleeding, it could mean that blood products are being flown to you to get you transfused, to stabilize you, to then transport you to another hospital. So hemorrhage is very, um, can be very seriously. I think, I think we take it very lightly, like, oh, she bled, we just replace it. But not all hospitals have, you know, a surplus of blood products. And when we say blood products, we mean pack red blood cells or what you donate when you get blood. Then we can separate that into plasma and red blood cells. So fresh frozen plasma has, you know, those clotting, the, the thing that makes you clot in it. Um, and then we also have cryoprecipitate, which has some of the clotting factors in it. So we have different components based on how much blood you've lost and, and, and what we need to replace. Not all hospitals have those things readily available. So it's, it's up to clinicians to recognize that who's, at, who's at risk of bleeding more who's stable to stay there and who needs to be transported based on the resources that are available at that hospital system. Now, hemorrhage can happen during the labor and delivery process. And when we say hemorrhage, you know, before it's like you're subjectively, like you've lost a lot of blood, any bleeding, hemorrhage. But when we say hemorrhage during labor delivery, we call that an intrapartum hemorrhage, meaning you're into the laboring process. And if you have a vaginal delivery, if you've lost more than 500 cc's or half a liter of blood, that is called a hemorrhage, an intrapartum hemorrhage. If in a C-section, you've lost more than a liter, 
That's called an intrapartum hemorrhage. Now, mind you, the average blood loss for vaginal delivery is somewhere between 300 to up to 500 cc's. And the average blood loss for C-section is somewhere around 800 to 1,000 cc's. So even normal blood loss still puts you close to the amount of hemorrhage. So that's why during the pregnancy, you'll get your blood count at the beginning. And you also get a third trimester blood count to see how anemic you are. Some people... If you're anemic in pregnancy already, and we estimate you're going to lose a liter during a C-section, that's how we know, hey, who do we counsel about the likelihood they're going to need a blood transfusion? If your blood count is, let's say, 27 is your hematocrit, which is that number that tells us like the average amount or average concentration of blood that usually is 45, okay? Hemoglobin being, you know, the little strands that bind red blood cells, 15 is normal. 45 hematocrit is normal for a non-pregnant person. In pregnancy, people that are anemic can have a hemoglobin of 11 or less. Okay, that will be significant anemia in pregnancy. Or hematocrit, that bottom number that tells you the overall total, of 33 or less. And you're still anemic if you're under 45. But significant hemoglobin less than 11 or 11 or less hematocrit, that's 33 or less. Let's say you're 27 because you have baseline anemia. And you lose a liter of blood during a C-section that automatically puts you at hematocrit of 17. The hematocrit of 17, people walk around dizzy, they're fainting. That's low enough. If you have a sustained low hematocrit that, like that, that's sustained low enough to make your, your heart have to pump harder, to go into shock. So those are people that we anticipate during the pregnancy. Hey, this person, let's check the iron levels. Okay, the iron levels are low. We may need to give this person iron transfusions to avoid a blood transfusion to make sure their, their blood count increases before a scheduled delivery or C-section. Um, if there are other components of your studies, we replace those. Like some people have a vitamin B12 deficiency that causes a different type of anemia. So those B12 levels need to be replaced. So that's why we do that blood count again in the early third trimester to make sure you're not somebody that's going to be at risk of a hemorrhage because everybody is not going to be average. We can't assume everybody's going to start at a level of 33. And oh, if you lose a liter, you're 23. You know, your hematocrit is 23, so you're still okay. You're not still okay if you started at 30, right? Or if you started at 25. So we need to know what that is because average blood loss can still make someone go into shock and still get somebody in real big trouble. And that's still considered a hemorrhage along the way because you've lost too much blood, okay? So yes, we put these like 500 cc's for vaginal delivery, 1,000 cc's for C-section in place. But if you've lost too much blood that is causing you to have altered mental status or need a mass transfusion protocol, that's a still a hemorrhage, okay? You've lost too much blood. It's up to us during the pregnancy to recognize who's at risk for a significant um, event if they lose the average amount of blood and if you have risk factors, we want to know so that we can be prepared at the time of delivery. Now, some people, if you have ongoing bleeding or you have patches of clots in the postpartum period, we call this a postpartum hemorrhage. OK, this type of hemorrhage can happen even if the delivery was completely normal. OK, you be bopping, be bopping and you bleed. OK, that, but there are risk factors for this. And these are people that are monitored now. Mind you, everyone after delivery gets 
their fundus or the top of the uterus checked to make sure it's firm. Because if it's not firm, that is going to put you at risk for bleeding. And we always do a post-delivery blood count to make sure that based on the expected estimated blood loss, or some hospitals do a quantitative blood loss where they measure, like they weigh all of the, you know, um, the sponges that we use and they they make sure that they're uh, suction up any blood that's wasted so they can say, this is how much blood she actually lost. So based on that quantitative number or maybe qualitative observation, that post-delivery complete blood count should be what we expect it to be. If it's lower than we expect it to be, then we're like, hmm, did we underestimate the blood loss somewhere or is she still bleeding, right? So everybody gets that evaluation or after delivery, about four hours after delivery, we should be looking looking at you and say, is everything okay? Are you making urine? Because people that are super anemic, they don't urinate. Your body tries to hold on to all the fluid. So are you making good urine? Or is the urine super concentrated? Are you, you know, is your belly inappropriately tender? Now, if you have a C-section, you're going to have some tenderness right around the decision. But is it inappropriately extra tender on exam? Um, are you oriented? Are you dizzy? Do your vital signs say that you're stable? And the things we look for in people's vital signs are blood pressure much lower than it used to be. Heart rate skyrocket high. So why are these things going on? Is it that we've lost too much blood and we need to replace it? So everybody's evaluated around four hours after they deliver for that. And of course, the nurses are assessing patients every the whole hour after you deliver um, continuously and then every couple of hours after delivery. But usually a physician is going to assess you about four hours afterwards. Now, exception is if you were delivered by midwife, then the midwife will be coming around and assessing you. So risk factors for hemorrhage. Okay, this is what physicians think about when we have patients. If you have fibroids, like I did, okay, risk factor for postpartum hemorrhage. Why? Because fibroids are blood stealers. 45% of your blood volume goes to the uterus during pregnancy. And fibroids are like, oh, yeah, she's pregnant. I am going to get more blood today. And so the estrogen stimulates the growth of these fibroids. And they're like just munching on blood, munching on blood, munching on blood to try to get bigger and bigger. Okay. And because of that, if you have fibroids that are like little blood sponges, you're at risk for bleeding. The other thing is if you have a C-section and you have to cut through the fibroid, it's very hard to reapproximate the uterus and sew it closed if you have to go through a fibroid, okay? And that may mean that your OBGYN may have to remove a fibroid just to get your uterus back closed. Well, like I said, fibroids are blood munchers, so just taking a fibroid out is going to take a lot of blood out because it's absorbed a lot of blood volume, okay? So um, fibroids is a risk factor for a hemorrhage. You know, twins or multiples, pretty much anything that distends your uterus or stretches that uterine muscle out is going to put you at risk for the tone of that uterus being, you know, atonic, meaning lacking tone. It's going to be soft, it's going to be mushy, and therefore it's going to bleed and bleed and bleed. Okay, so twins or triplets, quads, there's a higher risk of um, of uh, that muscle being able to collapse and tone back up, firm back up. So that puts you at risk for hemorrhage. A placenta privia or vasoprivia. We just talked about this. Placenta privia is when the placenta covers the opening of the cervix. So if you, you know, start to dilate, then those vessels that sort of tank or attach the um, placenta, they're going to shear away and cause you to have bleeding. Same thing with the vasoprivia. That cord is tacked down over the cervix. If those vessels start to shear away because you're dilating, that's going to cause you to have bleeding. If you had a postpartum hemorrhage 
in a past delivery that puts you at risk for a hemorrhage with this delivery. If you had any hypertensive disorder of pregnancy, meaning preeclampsia, if you had acute fatty liver, if you had gestational hypertension, which is not preeclampsia, but just high blood pressure that's isolated in the pregnancy, anything that's going to increase the pressure in the vessels is going to cause, when that placenta detaches, blood to shoot out faster, okay? So preeclampsia and other hypertensive disorders of pregnancy do put you at risk for losing a lot of blood during the delivery. If you had what's called polyhydramnios, um, we've had an episode on this. Polyhydramnios is when you have too much fluid around the baby inside of the uterus. Polyhydramnios, normal fluid, is between 5 and 25 centimeters of fluid or a maximum vertical pocket, a single deep pocket between 2 and 8 centimeters of fluid. If you have over 25 centimeters of fluid or a maximum vertical pocket, if you're looking at just one quadrant of the uterus, of more than 8 centimeters that's putting you at risk. And that's just because the uterus is over-descended, just like with multiples. Your uterine muscle stretched out, so it's going to be hard for it to firm back and tone back off and constrict those vessels that are feeding it. So polyhydramnios is another risk factor. Same thing with infection. Infection, the uterus does not want to act right during infection, okay? That uterus is boggy. The medicines we use to firm your uterus just don't act the way they need to act. And so infection makes increasing the tone of the uterus much harder. Tone is increased much more slowly um, than if you did not have an infection. So that is also a risk factor. And then if you have a prolonged second stage of labor, meaning you're pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing for hours on end, those people have a higher risk of hemorrhage. All right. So when we do have run into a hemorrhage or somebody bleeding at any time during the pregnancy, there are things that we do, right? So if you're not delivered and you have a significant blood loss, then the delivery must ensue. It's, it's time to get the baby out, time to get the source of the bleeding out, which is usually the placenta. And so delivery would be recommend, recommended. After you're delivered, then um, we have to help the uterus to firm. So we may give you medicines to help the uterus contract back down or firm back up after the placenta is out, like medicines called Cytotec or Hemabate. Um, those are very commonly given to help firm the uterus. We can also give you medication to slow down bleeding, such as a tranosemic acid. And that basically just stops the breakdown of your clotting factors. So it allows your blood to clot off um, and slow down flow um, of blood to the uterus. For some, we may have to take you to the operating room to do a compression stitch. Um, and that's called a bead lynch stitch to sort of try to compress or force tone of the uterus so that you can stop bleeding. And that's even if you didn't have a C-section. If you had a vaginal delivery, you're bleeding and bleeding, and we do maneuvers and try to pack the uterus and you're still bleeding, then we may have to bring you to the back and open you um, through a, like, a little mini incision and do what's called the bead lynch stench, which is a, just a stitch that basically goes around the uterus to try to compress it back down. Um, we may have to cut off blood supply to the uterus through the uterine arteries. Um, that's called an O'Leary stitch, where we try to slow down the blood flow by ligating one or both of those arteries that are feeding the uterus. If bleeding is controlled, um, for some with slower bleeds, we may call our radiology colleagues to do what's called a uterine artery embolization, 
which essentially slows down flow to the uterus, thus reducing blood loss. In some cases, even after that, this may be ongoing while we're doing all these steps, or it may be that we've done the steps and you're, you're just so anemic that now your heart is working harder. So you may have to get what's called a mass transfusion protocol. And that's if you lose a lot of blood, okay? Or if you're actively bleeding before you lose a lot of blood, we say, oh, she's bleeding so hard, we know she's going to lose blood. So then we activate what's called a mass transfusion protocol. Every hospital has their own mass transfusion protocol. So for example, most hospitals do like four to four to one transfusion protocol, which means we're going to go ahead and order four units of packed red blood cells. We're going to order four units of what's called uh, FFP, which has your, your fibrinogen in it. And then we're going to order the unit of cryoprecipitate for our clotting factors. Okay. So we're going to order the red blood cells, FFP and the cryoprecipitate at the same time. And if you do a mass transfusion protocol, it just activates that. Okay. It just activates that. Um, but like I say, every system is different. Okay. Every system is different. So um, you have to know, or your physician will know what you're getting based on what hospital system you're in. Now, I will say this if you are at a small hospital and you're bleeding, that would be a reason that your provider would automatically transfer you. If you have a home delivery and you're bleeding a little bit too briskly, before you bleed out a lot, that may be a reason that your home birth needs to be transferred via ambulance to the hospital. Um, and so some people try to hesitate on this. Don't do that, okay? I've seen very poor outcomes when people have had home deliveries with people stalling to try to get people there, right? Like, oh no, I don't want to go to the hospital. No, if you have a heavy bleed, you need to go ahead and go to the hospital because there's no blood products at home. So it's up to your provider to articulate that and let you know, hey, you're bleeding a little bit heavier than I like. Let's go ahead and get you to the hospital because we don't have blood over here. So I don't want to, if you listen to this podcast, um, especially if you're a doula, because I know some doulas are listening to this, please tell your patient they need to get there. Like this is change of plans. We know that everybody wants their own experience and we know that you want to deliver at home with your other kids involved. But at the end of the day, your kid needs a mom. So we need you to get to the hospital if you're bleeding a little bit too heavily. Even if you are delivered and that bleed was heavier than anticipated, right? With the placenta out, they should have you bundle your baby up and take you to the hospital. Because one thing for sure is if you lose a lot of blood during the delivery, who's to say you're not going to be symptomatic a couple hours later? Or who's not to say that you're not going to have any bleeding later on? And now we wish we would have sent you to the hospital. So it's always okay to go get checked at the hospital. Even if you had a postpartum hemorrhage at home that's under control, that would be a reason to be transferred to the hospital just to ensure that you're stable. And at the end of the day, it is safety first. We want mom and baby to be the healthiest they can be going forward through that postpartum period. And let me correct myself. I know I said before, fresh frozen plasma I think I said fibrinogen and cryoprecipitate was the clotting factor. That's actually opposite. The FFP was a clotting factor. So I just want to make sure I um, I got that straightened out. Because I know y'all, y'all will in-basket me and be like, wait a minute, you said X, Y, and Z, Dr. Plenty. Listen, I'm not perfect, but I will admit when I'm wrong. So I did get those switched up a bit. 
All right, so now that we know a little bit more about hemorrhage, let's go to some cases. Our first case is a 28-year-old who is four weeks postpartum. She had a healthy baby girl. Her pregnancy was complicated by preeclampsia, but her blood pressure has been controlled over the past two weeks. Over the past two days, she has been dealing with heavier bleeding than normal, even heavier than her heaviest period. She has now started passing clots and is feeling dizzy. She called the clinic to see why this is happening. Okay, so this is what I would call a delayed postpartum hemorrhage. It's delayed because it's remote from delivery. It's a month later. Now, some people may perceive that they're having a postpartum hemorrhage or it's heavier than normal just because they haven't had a period. And now, especially in our non-breastfeeding moms, they may be having a period, okay? Now, if you listen to the episode a couple seasons ago that was about you know miscarriage and subcoronary hemorrhage, we talked about what normal bleeding was, normal postpartum bleeding, meaning lochia. That can last up to six weeks. If you're starting to clot and pass those clots, that's either one or two things. Either now you're having a period that's heavy or you're having a postpartum hemorrhage. And because perception is different with each person, if this is heavier than you think it should be, always go in to be checked out. So the first thing I would do for this patient is call her back immediately and say, hey, I need you to get to the hospital because this could be a postpartum hemorrhage. When she gets to the hospital, the, the next thing I'm going to do is start an IV, draw a blood count, a complete blood count and clotting factors and give her fluids while I'm waiting for that to come back. Okay. If she's unstable, like hemodynamically unstable, then I'm going to order like stat labs, just spot check labs to see if she needs some blood instead of just fluids. Okay. But in the meantime, I'm going to get fluids until I get my labs back. Then once I get my labs back, that's going to tell me if we are doing a blood transfusion or not. Now, mind you, after I start my IV, I'm going to do an exam. So I'm going to see like how much bleeding are we actively having now? She's actively bleeding. Even if her blood count hasn't come back, I'm taking her to the OR. Why? Because we got to stop her from bleeding. So most of the time that may require us packing the uterus like with um, with sponges, sterile sponges to see if that will sort of tamponade the bleed um, if she's bleeding from the uterus. Sometimes we can do what's called a Bakri balloon, which is a balloon that acts as a tamponade that we put fluid inside and it just sort of blows up inside of the uterus and tamponades any vessels that may be bleeding on the inside. Now, that's after I do an ultrasound to make sure there's not a retained placenta or a piece of placenta that we just haven't gotten. But if I'm taking you to the OR to do a packing or to tamponade the uterus, I'm going to do a gentle exam and scrape the inside of the uterus just to make sure that there's nothing that's been left there, any debris, any membranes from the placenta, because that is the most common reason that people are, are bleeding is because there are membranes that are still there and they need what's called a DNC. So after the DNC, if you're still bleeding, I'm going to pack the uterus to tamponade the uterus or place a Bakri balloon. And which one I do depends on what resources I have and how heavy you're bleeding. If people are bleeding despite a Bakri and tamponading, then that's when we may have to go in and do those stitches that we talked about. Um, the O'Leary stitch or um, the B-Lynch stitch to try to compress the uterus and also slow down blood flow. If she's stable, this is when I would call my radiology colleagues in to do a urine artery embolization and um, under, um, you know, they'll inject dye to see those vessels and then basically use a substance to start to tamponade blood flow to those branches of the uterus 
to slow down blood, um, blood loss. So, you know, and lastly, anytime we bleed through all of those things, then rarely people may need a, a hysterectomy. That is the very last resort is a hysterectomy if you are bleeding very, very heavily. For this patient, she seems pretty stable because she says she's, she was bleeding heavy like a period, um, heavy than normal, and she started passing clots, but she can't be actively bleeding if she's calling the clinic, but maybe she can be because it says that she's dizzy now. So again, I would bring her in inpatient, do that evaluation, and really depending on how heavy she is and if she's reacting to any of the things that I just named, that would tell me what I needed to do. Key word here is if you are bleeding, please don't call. Just go to the hospital because it's hard for us to say if your bleeding is normal or not normal. And for me, if it's not normal for you, it's not normal, period. If it's normal for you, okay. If it's not normal for you, this is heavier than you've seen before, go in the hospital so that we can make sure that you are stable. Because what I don't want you to do is lose consciousness, faint, and then you have a family member that's trying to revive you or you know, you're know you not conscious enough to, to communicate. So before you get extremely symptomatic, call somebody, have them drive you to the hospital. Um, the worst that could happen is uh, if, you, if you're not really bleeding is that we say, okay, no problem. This is a normal period. We send you home, okay? But if you don't come, the worst that can happen is that something fatal can happen at home. So we want to, you know, this year we're going to work on being safe. Okay. It's all about safety this year. And we want you and your baby to be the safest you can possibly be. And before somebody comes for me and says, Dr. Plenty, you're always trying to scare us. No, I'm not trying to scare you, you guys. I'm trying to let, let make sure you recognize that hemorrhage and underestimating hemorrhage is the number one reason that people are dying from childbirth worldwide. Okay. And so when you're listening to this, I just want to make sure you're safe. And for me, safety, it, you know, the, the only thing you're losing is a little bit of time by going in and being evaluated. If you're a provider and you're in the community and you are, you know, don't have these facilities um, nearby, you can always call the ambulance and have the patient transferred to the nearest tertiary care facility just for safety's sake. Okay. Everything's about being safe. Um, all providers should be acting as a collaborative team, even people that are not in my hospital. If I have a midwife that calls me and needs advice or needs to, me to see somebody, I'm going to tell them I'm going to see them. Okay. Cause we should be working collaboratively because it's not about the providers. It's about the patients and keeping the patients safe. At the end of the day, we want everybody to walk away with safe, healthy babies and moms. So the case pearl for this case is, Delayed postpartum hemorrhage requires immediate evaluation. All right, medical intern, what's our next case? Our second case is a 41-year-old who is 14 weeks pregnant with her second child. She has had passage of clots about a week ago, but now has light vaginal bleeding. Other than the bleeding, she has experienced mild cramping. She was referred for ultrasound and consultation. Okay, this is a common reason that people are sent to uh, me as a high-risk specialist. And the most common thing here would be, let's make sure the patient is hemodynamically stable. Right now, the patient's only having light vaginal spotting. Obviously, her OBGYN feels like she's stable enough because she's only having a little bit of cramping, light spotting, that she can see me as, as an outpatient, meaning in the clinic. 
And I would take a history because I want to make sure I know how much bleeding she's already had. And 14 weeks is a scary time to bleed because you can't tell what's going on. You usually don't feel fetal movement at 14 weeks. Most people don't feel their babies move until somewhere between 18 and 24 weeks. And that's completely normal. That range is completely normal because people's perception of movement can be very different. It can also be very different depending on where the afterbirth or the placenta is located in the uterus. So I would do um, a history. I would also want to make sure I check a blood count and I want to see if the baby is still there. So for these patients, I'll do an abdominal ultrasound to look at where the placenta is. Like, is the placenta over the cervix? Because that's a common reason that people are bleeding this early. Is there a separation of the, of the membranes of the gestational sac or the sac the baby's sitting in? With blood and in that and what's called a subchorionic hemorrhage, or blood that's collecting between the two layers of the of the gestational sac or the baby sac, and how big the hemorrhage is if there is one there, and does the baby have heart tones? Okay, because some people that have a very big subchorionic hemorrhage have an increased risk of miscarriage, or this could be that the patient is miscarrying. Okay, some people are dilating and they don't even know it; they have painless cervical dilation or what's called a cervical insufficiency. And their only sign is that they're bleeding and they're not in really a lot of pain. They're just bleeding because their cervix is dilating and the placenta is starting to separate. Um, and those membranes are starting to separate and she's starting to deliver. So bleeding, especially heavy bleeding, is a, is a big risk factor for a miscarriage. So if that's happening, I want to make sure that is the baby alive? Is the patient's cervix dilating? Where's the location of the placenta on ultrasound? Is it covering the... Um, the opening of the cervix is the cord covering the opening. So I want to make sure I know how stable the patient is. And depending on what I find on ultrasound and the exam of the vagina, that tells me whether a patient is safe to stay pregnant. If they're bleeding heavily. They may need to be delivered. This does not seem like the case for this patient. If her baby is still alive, she would not need to be delivered because she's not bleeding anymore and she's not really in pain. But if she's in severe pain, and she's bleeding, even if the baby's alive, we would have to counsel her about the risk of this being a, a, a placental abruption, meaning that placenta, which has just started to form a couple weeks ago, may be separating from the inside of the uterus. And that could cause her to have sudden onset of bleeding. And that pain and the bleeding she's had so far is a telltale sign that that may escalate and we could get into some danger. So um, it just depends on how stable she is and what I see on ultrasound, which would tell me if she can continue the pregnancy or if it's somebody that needs to end the pregnancy to make sure she is stable for her own life. Okay, because people try to do everything they can to hold on these babies. But if you don't survive, the baby won't survive at 14 weeks. Okay, there's no there's no way for you to not survive and a baby survive. Okay, so we've got to make sure that hemodynamically meaning your vitals are stable and you're safe to continue the pregnancy. That's always a big and deep discussion that we have with patients. And it's a hard decision that they have to make if you are significantly bleeding and you are in pain. But if you're not in a subchronic hemorrhage, then we just follow the pregnancy, see how big the hemorrhage is. Sometimes the hemorrhage or blood will reabsorb itself and get smaller and smaller and smaller as the uterus gets bigger and the baby gets bigger. Sometimes it's a telltale and an increased risk of miscarriage. So it just it just depends. Um, this early, it's tricky. It's tricky. So it really depends on what we see. So 
the case pearl for this case is a subcarnate hemorrhage or miscarriage are the most common reasons for first trimester and early second trimester bleeding. All right, medical interns, do we have any more cases? Dr. Plenty, I have a history of heavier periods and had a uterine artery embolization for treatment of fibroids. I'm now 26 weeks pregnant. Does this procedure or my history put me at risk for heavy bleeding during delivery? Well, congratulations on making it to 26 weeks. That's really exciting. Um, so I'll say uterine artery embolization or um, uterine fibroid embolization, either one, either one, they're, they're, they're interchangeably used, is something that is a non-invasive way to avoid surgery and treat fibroids, right? It's like basically maps out the blood supply to the fibroids and they basically sort of like uh, radiologists like ligate those those little branches to the fibroid, thus killing the blood supply, which then shrinks the uterus and make I mean uh, shrinks the fibroid and makes it die. Okay, I've seen some miraculous outcomes. People with big fibroids get a uterine fibroid embolization, and all of a sudden you can't even see the fibroid, right? So it's a great treatment for people that have fibroids that don't want a surgery, can't take the time to have a surgery, still want childbearing and want to avoid major surgeries. Great alternative. So for some people, it may decrease blood supply to the uterus itself, and that can decrease your risk of being able to get pregnant, okay? And we also know that people that have a uterine artery embolization tend to have smaller babies, but that's people with fibroids in general. There's a risk factor for smaller babies because of that decreased blood flow that's allowed to the placenta. Now, the procedure itself, does it put you at risk for hemorrhage? Well, no. I mean, you've cut off the blood supply to the fibroids, so it does not. But it really depends on, do you have new fibroids? Okay, so cause just because the blood supply to the fibroids you had was cut off doesn't mean that you're not going to get more fibroids. And so if you had a uterine artery embolization, yeah, that, that puts you in a higher risk category for hemorrhage just because we know you're at higher risk for developing fibroids. But if you don't have fibroids anymore, if the blood supply was successfully cut off and we don't, we've not developed new fibroids, then usually it does not put you at risk for heavier bleeding during delivery. Okay. It, it makes you, your uterus is normal. And so it does not put you at risk. But, but, but the risk factor is we know you're prone to developing fibroids. So you do need an ultrasound early in pregnancy to see if you have fibroids there and periodically through the pregnancy to see, are you someone that had a little fibroid in the first trimester that's now hormonally responsive? And that's grown during the pregnancy. There's a lot of times we see little one centimeter fibroids, then all of a sudden the third trimester, they're five or six centimeters. So periodically you do need ultrasounds through the pregnancy to make sure we know the size of the baby and also look to see if we have any, um, any fibroid growth now that you're pregnant and that those fibroids um, are stimulated by estrogen. So I hope that answers um, your question there. Um, medical intern, do we have any more email questions or cases? And she's shaking her head no. So you guys, thanks so much for listening to Pregnancy Pros Podcast. I hope you learned a little bit more about hemorrhage related to pregnancy. If you like the podcast, make sure to rate and drop me a comment. Also, go ahead and share the podcast and this episode with your friends and family who are pregnant, planning to get pregnant, or who want or need women's health tips. If you or someone you know has had a pregnancy complication or unique pregnancy situation, 
Let me know about it. Email me at pregnancypearls at gmail.com to hear your topic or case discussed on one of our podcast episodes. Also, remember to follow me on Instagram at pregnancy underscore pearls and Facebook at pregnancy pearls. You can also check out the um, website, which is www.drnicoleplenty.com for free pregnancy information, downloadables, and pregnancy checklists. In closing, remember to advocate for yourself. You are your biggest advocate and no one knows what's going on with your body except for you. Thanks for listening. Bye. Pregnancy Pearls is hosted by Dr. Nicole Lee Plenty. Produced by Nicole Plenty and Janine Brunson Johnson. Executive producer Ken Johnson. Find Pregnancy Pearls on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and rate. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice for diagnosis or treatment of individual medical conditions. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with specific questions regarding a medical condition. Pregnancy Pearls is a mean old lion media production.